Maybe you go for a Brendan Rodgers. Oh, behave yourself. Imagine, imagine Brendan goes and loses the first three games. Former Liverpool manager. No chance. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're very welcome along. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon as ever going through the Sunday Papers. I'll start by running you through the various front pages. So Sun Sport, for instance, a picture of Andros Townsend uh, mimicking the Cristiano Ronaldo celebration yesterday at Old Trafford. The headline is Taking the Chris and... In the photo alongside it, you have Andros Townsend uh, trying to, I think, placate Cristiano Ronaldo, who's busy storming off the pitch at full time, either annoyed at Andros Townsend or annoyed at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or just annoyed at himself and Manchester United for losing. Not entirely clear, but uh, Andros Townsend insisting the celebration wasn't to mimic Ronaldo. It was more a tribute to him. The guy is my idol. I was not imitating. It's just a mark of respect to a guy who influenced my career. All told, much ado about nothing, but that's on the back page of the Sun. Jurgen Klopp makes quite a few back pages. So the Mail on Sunday here, Klopp blasts anti-vaxxers. Liverpool manager likens refusing jab to drink driving as he backs full vaccinations. The analogy he was drawing with the drink driving really was he was saying, well, if I have a drink or two and I feel like I could drive, I know I can't because of the law. So I could argue that's limiting my freedom in the way that anti-vaxxers argue the vaccine is limiting their freedom. So that's made the front pages in a few places, including the Sunday Times. In fact, uh, like the Mail on Sunday, they have a big picture of Ronaldo alongside the club story. So here's Ronaldo, hands on his hips. Homesick is the headline. United dropped more points at Old Trafford to deepen Solskjaer's troubles. It is a bad run for Solskjaer at the moment. And actually, just looking inside... The next couple of games for Manchester United. Leicester City away, you would think that could be tricky. Atalanta at home, well, Villarreal at home was tricky, so that could be tricky. Followed by Liverpool at home. Followed on October 30th by Spurs away. You would like to think they'll get their act together sooner rather than later. Followed by Atalanta away. Followed by Manchester City at home. That brings Solskjaer up to November 6th. So potentially the next six matches could go a long way towards deciding his future. Uh, Klopp, this is again front page Sunday Times sports section. We are 99% vaccinated at Liverpool. And he goes on to make the similar points to the ones on the back of the Mail on Sunday. Sunday Independent, their uh, lead picture is from Thoman Park last night. Munster, Stormers. Reds come from behind to maintain winning start. This is a 34-18 win for Munster at Thoman Park against the Stormers. A picture of RG Sneeman reaching over to score one of the tries. If 34-18 sounds comfortable, it wasn't really. It was 15-0 to the Stormers with about two minutes left in the first half. And to tell you the truth, they played all the rugby. This was uh, an Irish side ultimately using uh, power and set piece and bulldozing over a South African side. So uh, their coach pre-game had made the point that actually it's not like international level where the national team for South Africa is all about set piece and power. They're more about ball through hand and passing and Munster, he was saying, are more about set piece and pick and goes. And, And so it proved it was Munster power ultimately, which... Uh, brought them back into the game and won that game in the second half. So 34-18, the final score. And then again, Klopp hits out at COVID vaccination refusers. Uh, Liverpool manager likens movement to drink drivers. Uh, Sunday Mirror, they have Ole no regrets with making Ronaldo decision. And then beneath that, protect us on two different fronts. So Guardiola, I have faith in the Merseyside police and the fans uh, will keep 
team bus attack as bad memory so he's uh, referencing here maybe three years ago wasn't it Champions League bottles and flares thrown at the bus he's not expecting a repeat performance and then again Jurgen Klopp Prem stars refusing to have coronavirus vaccine is like drink driving Sunday World Mo Salah Pool Salah going nowhere is the headline so uh, it seems Mo Salah is nowhere near signing his Liverpool contract extension to be fair it's only up in 2023 uh, they say here Kevin Palmer Virgil van Dijk believed to be Liverpool's top earner at 220,000 sterling a week Salah is looking for 300,000 a week and then the uh, front page of the Sunday Times main section lead story FAI chief Delaney that's John Delaney got 250,000 euro loan of Dennis O'Brien front page of the Sunday Times main section which is where we'll start very happy to bring in Roy Curtis from the Sunday World Roy you're very welcome Thanks, Joe. Good morning. And Kieran O'Reilly, broadcaster and writer, is with us as well. Hi, Kieran. Morning, Joe. So we'll start with this Sunday Times main section front page. There was a time when this was a weekly event, the Sunday Times main section front page, when it came to John Delaney. So Mark Ty, Paul Rowan here. Uh, business associated with John Delaney received a €250,000 loan from Dennis O'Brien. O'Brien the two journalists note had contributed 12.5 million to the FAI over 10 years to help pay the salaries of various managers. So it seems here the money was paid to Pillar View, which is a company associated with John Delaney. In the past, right, Ty and Rowan, Pillar View had issued checks to a number of people linked to Delaney, including one FAI employee. It also helped to finance Delaney's purchase of a 1.3 million euro house in Wicklow in 2019. It went into voluntary liquidation last December, by the way. Uh, they note as well, Dennis O'Brien, the first honorary life president. Uh, that happened in August of 2018. Uh, crucially, I suppose, maybe this is the nub of the story, board members from the Delaney era say that they were not told about a business relationship between Delaney and O'Brien before the honorary position of life president was bestowed. It says that the loan was used to refinance debt with Bank of Ireland, which had been incurred by Delaney's property development business. Uh, it was proposed Delaney would pay back the loan in two lump sum payments. Late 2017, Brian Fagan, then chief financial officer at one of O'Brien's uh, advisory financial firms, contacted Delaney to seek an update on their proposals to repay the €250,000. Delaney understood to have proposed by paying off in two tranches of €125,000 the first payment January 2018. Fagan was told by Delaney he would use the proceeds of the sale of two houses in Carrick and Shure to repay the debt. No repayment was made in the first half of 18. Delaney was visiting O'Brien at the Portuguese resort in Quinta de Lago in July of that year. Fagan pressed him for an update on the repayments. Uh, in July of 2018, then, Delaney informed Fagan he had the funds available to pay the first tranche of the debt, according to sources. The payment was made the first payment certainly it's not clear about the second payment and last week Delaney did not respond to queries about the business relationship with O'Brien or why it was not declared to the FAI board and then finally for me Mark Tyne Paul Rowan here say there is no suggestion O'Brien did anything wrong by making the 250,000 euro available to Pillarview I suppose, Roy, Dennis O'Brien's perfectly entitled to give a loan to any business he so wishes. The point here is that the FAI board knew nothing of the loan and you would think, I would say, that that is something 
the FAI board should have been made aware of. In truth, though, there were quite a few things that FAI board were not made aware of down the years. Yeah, I mean, the FAI's hunger for a new beginning is is everywhere to see. But unfortunately, these revelations, again, great work by, by Mark Ty and, and Paul Rowan, again, they've, they've led the way on this. But every revelation brings them back to those darker times when there was all this murk and secrecy. As you say, Dennis O'Brien is entitled to loan money to whomever he chooses, but it is indicative of the way the FAI existed at that stage where there was no real meaningful communication, it seems, between its chief executive and the FAI board, that it was it was run as a as a one-man operation. And we seem each time we think we've we've got to the bottom of this and we've heard everything, something else happens and it just casts such a shadow over the FAI and I think probably with the national team not doing so well at the moment, again next week, here we have a distraction again, this is going to be on the news agenda for the next couple of days and it's just indicative of a sorry time in, in Irish football history which which they just can't seem to get, leave behind. Yeah, Kieran, I would put it to you, the least surprising aspect of this whole piece is that John Delaney didn't comment on the situation or give any clarification about why he mightn't have informed the FAI board. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that at some point, um, I, I don't really read a lot of uh, sports biographies or autobiographies, but if John Delaney wrote one now, I think I'd be quite interested in the next few years because there's so many things here, there's so many unanswered questions, there's so many no comments, even that time when he was in front of, um, you know, the, 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 not the doll, but the committee, he, he just really sidestepped everything. So there's so many things here that you'd like to get to the bottom of and know, you know, exactly how it all happened. I, I just don't think we'll ever find an answer. I thought it was kind of interesting there that Delaney arranged for Giovanni Trapattoni to make a presentation to a team that one of Dennis O'Brien's children played on. Uh, the kid probably had no idea who Trap was, but it's 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 it's, it's almost like a, a, you know, a Tory politician. He, he's kind of lived that life where he's just like, cash for access, cash for this, cash for that. And uh, it's just remarkable what's going on there. And he, I think he just got away with so much for so long, it just became so easy. And, you know, there was nobody holding any anybody to account. And um, that's why Mark and, and Paul have got so many, you know, stories here. There's just so many things that he got away with um, and tried to get away with. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know when it'll end, but I'd love to read that, that biography at some point. Yeah, well, that's the front page, Sunday Times, main section, once again, uh, an FAI lead there, FAI Chief Delaney got 250,000 loan off Dennis O'Brien and the board members from the Delaney era say they were not told about any business relationship there. Roy, another front page story is Jurgen Klopp. You picked that out. Yeah, I think Klopp is perhaps the most impressive figure in contemporary sport. I think what shines through is the guy's emotional intelligence when he deals with a subject. He has that aura and gravitas and charisma of a natural leader. Today, he's come out and talked about vaccines. He's stressed that he, rather than deal with conspiracy theories, goes to experts to find information, which he did with doctors who told him the vaccine is the way to deal with this issue. He's exceptionally forthright in an age when people are terrified to speak. And I think his, his link with Liverpool really sort of manifests itself in how he shows leadership. Liverpool as a city is geographically within England's confines, but politically, culturally, emotionally, it regards itself as sort of an independent republic. And the leader of the football team is the voice, the, the North Star for that city. It's why Shankly was revered, how he led the city. And I think Klopp 
people talk about him as a successor to Shankly, but he shows it time and again when he steps up and talks about things that other managers refuse to deal with. And he does it with an intelligence, with a calmness and with a charisma that you go, you know what, he's right. And he, he draws people in. As, as a neutral, I'm not a Liverpool supporter, but I find myself rooting for them because of this guy. Um, and you have a situation with the vaccines, with, with English clubs, where there's a lot of clubs with less than 50% of their players vaccinated. There have been huge outbreaks. Um, and it seems those conspiracy theories have held some sway with a, with, with a lot of players, as they have with a lot of elements in society. And I think it's refreshing to see a guy of Klopp's stature deal with this rather than talk around it and be afraid to insult insult sensibilities he actually takes the bull by the horns and talks about it with a rationality and an intelligence that's not often seen in professional sport yeah because jonathan northcroft in his piece says several managers would like to be more outspoken and advising players to have the vaccination but feel they will be accused of interfering with individual liberties and indeed inside in the mail on page 78 there's a vaccine report Nick Harris here and he mentions Gareth Southgate who did take part in a campaign I suppose to encourage vaccinations during the summer and he says he's never had such abuse over anything he's ever been part of but uh, he still says he supports vaccinations and he does point out the World Cup may require players to be vaccinated interestingly he's totally in the dark about who's vaccinated and who is not because we are talking about players medical situations here and their medical information. So Southgate Inside says of those resistant to the jab, I don't know who he says our medical team would know, but even I wouldn't. They won't tell me who is and who isn't. Although interestingly, he does say at the next camp, we will have an idea because there there are going to be some activities where one group is going to go through one door and another will go through the other door over the next few months. So I don't quite know how we are going to keep all that medical confidentiality there. And alongside that, Nick Harris has a report really of just the extent to which COVID has hit so many players in the Premier League, a quarter of players. I mean, they have been playing and travelling right through this entire pandemic. So it's not surprising. At least 130 first team players have tested positive for the disease during the pandemic, he says. Mentioned some of the stars. You're talking Ronaldo. You're talking Varane, Edison Cavani, all at Manchester United. Mo Salah, Sadio Mane at Liverpool. Riyad Mahrez, Kyle Walker, Ferran Torres, N'Golo Kante, obviously, recently. Several managers, Arteta. We've had Brennan Rogers, David Moyes. I wonder, Kieran, given the extent to which COVID has been in Premier League dressing rooms, and in the main, I know a few exceptions at Newcastle, but in the main, players, young, fit, healthy, have generally come through just fine. I wonder if that's part of the reason that the anti-vax movement has taken hold in that dressing room. Players have looked around, seen their colleagues test positive because there are so many tests all the time. And they're saying, well, everybody's coming through this just fine. I don't, I don't need to take a quote unquote risk with my body with the vaccine. Yeah, I think there's something in that. I think was it Alan Sam Maxman at, at, at Newcastle was supposed to have it last year and it kind of lingered for a while. But we haven't really heard anything else from any elite sports or athletes where it's been really you know, difficult for them, or they they've really struggled, and I I might be wrong there, but I don't think I've I've come across many stories like that. No, not many. I saw I saw Tom Daly, the diver, just this week saying he thought he was going to die. So there are definitely exceptions, oh, yeah. Right, but okay, there, I mean, awesome. not not a truckload of them either. 
Yeah, I'd say it's a tiny percentage. And again, like we, we are learning more and more that, you know, the, the healthier you are, the younger you are, you know, you're, you're going to have less less reaction to, to it at all. But I, and I think a lot of the guys that are elite athletes nowadays have spent the last 10, 15 years taking incredible care of their body. And they're maybe more careful than even the average Joe Soap who, who you know, might put all sorts of things into his body. So there might be a little bit of a, a bit of a resistance that way. But um I mean, I, I don't think there's, I don't, I don't understand why clubs or coaches wouldn't know everything about their players this way. I mean, maybe not put it out into public, that's fine. But for Gareth Southgate to not know, or for for people to be so private about it, seems a bit baffling. When again, it is to be part of a team here, and you know, if, if you if you if you don't want to get it, I mean, it's it's not a it's not a law. Nobody's putting you know that kind of pressure on them. But Jurgen Klopp made a very clear point there, and I thought I agree with Roy there. Like I, I'm not a Liverpool fan, but I can't help but smile listening to the man. He can talk about. He could read the the phone book to me, and I'd want to I'd want to pay attention. He he's just got such weight behind him, and he's he's not afraid to speak out. He spoke about Brexit really well a couple of years back. He said like I don't understand it, just you know called called a spade a spade there, no problems. And I think he's he's one of the better voices on it, and it's great to see him come out and say it. And I think that's probably a reason why the Liverpool players have bought into it because he just instills this. He's got this gravitas, as Roy again said, and, and the players will listen to him and do what he says and realise that he's coming from an informed position. And um, I think it's probably, you know, becoming a more coaches to step up and do the same thing. But I don't think we'll see that, really. I think I think Jürgen's one of the one of the kind. Roy, where do you think all this goes? Is it appropriate if players are doing their media duties after matches to be asked, are you vaccinated? What's your stance on vaccination? Is it appropriate for rugby players in this country to be asked after games what their stance on vaccination is or is that private medical choice? We live in this age of, of GDPR. Um, the, I mean, the All-Ireland programmes this year, they, they didn't list players' weights and heights and ages because they felt that was interfering with GDPR. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it can go to absurdist levels. And I understand and respect people's right to medical privacy. But at the same time, these are guys getting paid to do a particular job and teams are suffering and competitions are suffering and being put on hold because of outbreaks. So obviously these things are not contractually written into, into players or legally written into players' contracts. But I think in future, they may have to be. There may have to be an element of, if you are signing with us, there are conditions. I mean, there are conditions to every contract that you behave in certain fashions. And if something is so pivotal to a player being able to perform and a team being able to deliver to its optimum, um, Jurgen Klopp references drink driving. When, when players go out and break those sort of rules, they suffer consequences. And I think in an industry, as, as Kieran says, there is, no, there is no legal imperative. Perhaps there's a moral imperative when, when you're a part of something um, that generates so much money, both for you and for the club, that I think there is a situation where you could ask these players. Um, I think it's different than medical history regarding injuries or illnesses. I think this is something that has taken over all our lives to a degree over the last 18 months that I think there's an entitlement to be to be seeking people to be upfront about it. Mm. Isn't, it hap- isn't it happening in the NFL at the moment? Um, like there's a lot of, ironically it's in America, but a lot of the NFL players have been told they'd be fine or they won't get paid if they're not vaccinated. And this is America. So when it, when it, when it's the bottom line that's get affected, 
things start to change. And it's kind of ironic that America, which has got still a huge amount of, of deaths every week, um, a lot of political infighting on, on the realities of what's going on. But the NFL have come out and, and taken a stance on it. And I think that might start to seep across the Atlantic as well if we start to see more games being cancelled or, or money being, being lost. Yeah, I think a couple of NBA teams as well are insisting on it if you want to play at the home venue so in effect if you don't do that you're not on the team so yeah it'll be interesting yeah. to see where it goes uh, something totally different then a couple of uh, people writing about the Professor McLaren report into corruption at boxing so Michael Foley page 11 is uh, detailing some of the findings of the McLaren report I think people are pretty au fait with it at this stage and to be honest I mean uh, this report really just uh, documenting what we've all known for a very long time I mean so, I mean, it starts off by talking here on page 11 of the Sunday Times, Professor Richard McLaren's report. This is the same McLaren who had the report into the systematic Russian doping. And obviously, we all remember Michael Conlon and Vladimir Nikitin and Conlon telling AIBA that they were effing cheats, cheating bastards who were paying everybody. I mean, it turns out he was completely right. It wasn't even like an emotional outburst and he was going a bit OTT and you would think, well, they can't be that corrupt. I mean, he was actually understating the problem, really. I mean, Aiba wrote back to Michael Conlon on Twitter. We truly understand your frustration, read the tweet. The new Aiba leadership working hard to right the wrongs of the past. We commissioned the report as a way to unearth corruption in previous eras, which I guess is a fair point. We're doing everything we can to make up for mistakes made. And it turns out uh, Michael Conlon is going to take legal action. He wants that medal, and I suppose he's perfectly entitled to want it. Um, Michael Foley points out, in parallel with the misfortune uh, visit on Conlon, Michael Gallagher from OMA was among the five-star judges suspended from boxing activities at Rio who feature heavily in the report. In the end, there will be no good way out of this. The culture of corruption so embedded in the AIBA, according to the McLaren report, that the scale and time span of that corruption remains impossible to fully measure. I think that is a key point, Roy, isn't it, that... This goes so far beyond Rio. I mean, in some respects, the fighters who were screwed over at Rio are lucky it was on a world stage and there were cameras there. Can you imagine the amount of dodgy decisions which have happened in gymnasiums all over the world over the last, what, 20, 30 years? David Walsh has even gone right back to Roy Jones in Seoul. Yeah, I was, I was going to reference the David Walsh uh, piece in that regard. I mean, there, for me, the Olympics is this sort of bipolar mammoth event on one side, you have these wonderful athletes, the Kelly Harringtons, the Paul O'Donovans, who take us out of slumps and slouches every four years, who carry us to a, a place of communal celebration. And on the other, the other side, you have this gargantuanly corrupt, um, this fat cat expenses. I, I think probably the most revealing thing of this whole story is that we should be shocked, we should be appalled, we should be surprised. I think most people just shrugged their shoulders when they read it. It's a huge story. And yet, there's no real wow, because you sort of knew this. As you said, Michael Conlon, in an emotional, hugely emotional outburst, a fraught guy having seen his Olympic dream perish, probably understates, his outburst understates what's going on. I mean, the Olympics is so broken. It can produce beauty, but as an organisation, as an event, um, the International Olympic Committee, the the, the AIBA as a, as a subset of that. It's so endemic, the corruption, that you wonder how can you start again and root it out? We talk about health services and that you'd have to start again, but it's impossible to go back to that. So I, 
I think you're going to see these stories continue. They're an inevitability. Professional sport and the money that surrounds it will always mean that there are issues. Um, I, Michael references uh, in his piece about uh, CK Wu, the AIBA, AIBA president, um, at a qualifier asking, beseeching people to help Turkey who were hosting this qualifying tournament. And at that same qualifiers, Joe Ward and Con Sheen were both eliminated by Turkish boxers. Paddy Barnes, who had already qualified, was also defeated by a Turkish boxer. And Michael asked the rhetorical question, did they get screwed as well? If this can happen in plain sight in front of us in the biggest events in the world, as you say, what's happening in the smaller off-Broadway shows, it just stinks to high heaven. It does, all right. Uh, David Walsh takes an interesting angle, by the way, on the Roy Jones Jr. decision. It's a really famous decision back in Seoul. And he makes the point as well, like he, he talks about 88 being remembered for Carl uh, Lewis or Ben Johnson rather beating Carl Lewis and effectively most of that uh, lineup being on drugs but he says 34 years later it's clear that Johnson's cheating wasn't the worst in Seoul and after all six of his rivals in that infamous final would subsequently be linked with doping in one way or another he says no the greatest scandal played out eight days later on the final day of the competition so the angle here which is a bit different and interesting South Korea's Park Si Hun was the winner and he beat Jones Jr who was then 19 at the time I haven't watched this fight, but by all accounts, this is just a scandal. Uh, he lands three times as many punches as Park, who received two standing counts. Uh, three of the five judges, however, made Park the winner. Though soon after the fight, one offered a bar- bizarre explanation for his choice. The judge said, I was positive my four fellow judges would score the fight for the American by a wide margin, says the Moroccan judge. So I voted for the Korean to make the score only 4-1 for the American and not embarrass the host country. And the referee, uh, I mean, can you believe it? The referee turned to Jones in the ring as he was about to raise Park's hand and said to Jones Jr., I can't believe they're doing this to you. And Park could have vaguely disconsolate figure on the podium as Jones received the kind of applause normally reserved for the medal winner. Jones afterwards asked Park, did you win that fight? And Park said no. Jones says, then I was cool with it. If you tell me the truth, I'm cool. But... What's really interesting is the effect it has on Park. We know about Jones Jr. and his career. Park retired immediately afterwards to become a middle and high school teacher in a rural seaside town in Korea. Though he had no actor part in what happened in Seoul, his was a tarnished gold medal. And with that came problems. And so he says, I didn't want to raise my hand. I felt uh, gloomy because of what had happened. I was pretty quick for middleweight, but Jones was at a different level. A boxer just knows when he's lost a match. And Walsh writes, living with the uncertainty that he didn't deserve his gold medal has diminished Park's life. It was, he said, like being hit with a hammer on the back of your head again and again. I keep thinking how my life would have been happier had I finished second. Park said the depression that followed led to suicidal thoughts. His wife had helped him through the darkest times. The couple considered moving to a different country, but having started a family, they decided to remain in Korea. So kind of interesting to see that other side, Kieran, the effect it has on Park's life here and prompts depression and you can imagine the sense of embarrassment he must feel and people must wonder did he have any hand or part in what had happened yeah especially you know being Korean and in Korea and uh, we kind of know a little bit about the the culture there and the the, the idea of shame being overwhelming I'd never heard that story before it was a a great little nugget I'd I'd heard about the Roy Jones story and uh, actually just doodling him at the weekend because he was he was ringside at the Joshua fight and um, I'd heard a little bit about it, but yeah, there was a great little nugget there. I, I think one of the worst things is, 
you know, with 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 this story, like there's always been cheating in the Olympics. Uh, you can go back to 1896. I think the marathon, one of the Greek locals jumped in a carriage for half the, the marathon and won a bronze medal. And somebody eventually said, hold on, I saw, I saw you on the loose there earlier on. And he, he got his medal stripped away. So you can go back to the very start. But with, with this story, it's, it's not even it's not the boxers that are doing anything wrong. It's, it's outside of it. So it's 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 doubly it's doubly painful. It's doubly insulting, really, to the to the watching public as well. And it's the subjectivity of boxing, isn't it? I mean, this is we're talking about the Olympics here, but this happens every week in big boxing fights, you know, professional level. It's it's not it's not a new story. I think Roy said people will shrug their shoulders. I think mostly people will do that because it's boxing. You know, there's just so much negativity around boxing. I'm, I wouldn't be a big boxing fan, but it, it can provide some of the greatest sporting stories, some of the greatest sporting personalities. Um, like I watched I watched a fight last week, the Joshua fight against Usyk, and it, it, you know, I actually sat watching it with a guy who was a former Irish amateur champion, and and he was saying um, beforehand that Usyk would win, and it got to the final round, and we were still sitting around thinking, okay, he's won this clearly, mm. but there was no guarantee that it was going to go his way, and I think even a lot of people were still surprised that he got the decision because a it was in England, you know, the hometown decision and all the rest. So the subjectivity of boxing mean, means it's especially open to this kind of situation, and. Um, I mean, what, I think Michael Michael Foley mentioned there about, you know, what kind of fallout will there be from this in terms of boxing at the Olympics? I mean, it's always been one of the biggest sports there. It's got a great story, great history. But if this was happening in another sport, I think there'd be a huge question about whether it would actually continue. You know, would it be allowed into the next Olympics? Would it be taken out for a, a cycle or, or two? And I'm, I think Ireland have more than, I think it's 18 out of 35 medals that we've won since independence came from boxing. And you know we've got the Kelly Harrington story and all the other people that have won medals. And if boxing does fall out of the Olympics because of this, it would be particularly bad for Ireland, which is kind of ironic when we're looking at what happened to Michael Connell. Yeah, Roy, you wonder how much your sport can take or how much your movement can take. So the Olympics, I have to be honest at this stage, I just watch most of it with my arms crossed and don't get too <laughs> excited yeah. either way because for you know for for me it's it's taken more than it can handle. It has been tarnished in so many ways: drugs, cheating, now dodgy decisions. I find it very hard to get excited about the Olympics, I have to be honest. Where is it for you, given all the murkiness around it? When, when you lose credibility, it affects how you watch things, of course. I tend to watch sport through the prism of emotions. I love seeing people fulfill a dream. I love seeing people express themselves on a grand stage and in so doing, touch us deep in the soul. That's, that's the beauty I find in sport rather than tactical battles i just love kelly harrington brought me to a place in those couple of fights that not a lot of things have done in recent times i mean there's two contrasting scenes in in irish sport this year that really lifted me and one was harrington just this fundamentally decent human being who had this lovely disarming way of talking she's stepping into this violent arena and outside it, like so many boxers, she's almost lyrical in the way she discusses her life. And the whole Portland Row angle with a, an area of Dublin that's been portrayed in such, with such negativity and stigmatized. And to see this sensational athlete come out and do so much good, I found that completely compelling. I mean, likewise, Shane Lowry, we probably talk about the Ryder Cup in a while, but one of the one of the great stories it's not an olympic story but it's it's amateur athletes and its sense of place 
was literally in a retro Offaly jersey in Crow Park cheering on the under-20s. I mean, I just, I, I found myself close to tears watching that. So the Olympics can still do that to me, while I'm also absolutely cognizant with my cynical hat on that most of what you see, or certainly a lot of what you see, is very difficult to invest a lot of belief in. But it's those compelling human stories. I mean, look at the way Paul O'Donovan and his brother Gary touched us five years ago. These things really do. I've, I've, I've covered a number of Olympics. I was in Atlanta when we had all the Ma Michelle Smith stuff going on. And then I was, in, I was in Australia in 2000. And to see how Kathy Freeman and Ian Torp, how they energized Sydney, how the whole harbour area came to life, that's, that's a gift that even amongst all the corruption, we can't forget that it touches ordinary people. And I, I remember there was a brilliant um, New York columnist, a column written about Charles Lindbergh when he, when he crossed the, the first solo Atlantic crossing. And it talked about how there was a brotherhood in being, how so many people felt something had happened that had elevated their lives to a place that it doesn't often go. And I think for all the negativity, great Olympic moments can still do that. Okay. Uh, quite often we get... Uh, sorry, Kieran. No, I just want to go and watch some sport now, Roy. Cheers. <laughs> watch a bit of sport. It's funny because Shed a few tears. Feed up. Yeah, I think sport should be on Netflix from now on because like, there's a, there, there is this cognitive dissonance that we need to have. And um, as you were saying there, you're kind of, you cross your arms just watching the Olympics yeah. and you're not sure. I, I kind of find I have that as well. And I think the last few years with, with soccer, um, you know, from Ireland dropping down the rankings, from clubs falling out of the heights that they were at, uh, the money becoming so much more. I kind of watch football a bit through a different prism now than I used to. It just doesn't have the joy anymore. Um, I'm a little bit with Roy there, like this this, this kind of taking over of everything by data. And uh, I, I mean, I find some of it fascinating, but the, the, the overall Americanization of soccer as well now is just taken away from it a bit for me. Uh, the personalities aren't there. But to come back to the cognitive dissonance, like I nearly cried last year watching Sam Bennett win the uh the sprint at the Likewise. Champs Elysees and it was a young Irish lad he's in the green jersey well he's not that young sorry but an Irish lad in the green jersey uh which he'd won for the whole race and he was doing what Sean Kelly did years ago and then to win it on the Champs Elysees and just the, the way he just sprinted and pulled away from the, the peloton I was nearly in tears and because I used to love cycling as a kid watching you know Martin Early, Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach and I still had that joy that day um, to see this man live his dream, and that's cycling. You know, this is one of the most downtrodden sports over the last two decades. But you can still find something in it that can be incredible. And um, you know, I, I think you do have to kind of separate it. You know, it's so, it's so broken in so many ways across so many sports. You still have to kind of look through and find the joy in the bits that you want, and then go about your daily life. You know, this, this is not. I don't think we're going to put any of this back. It's not, the, the genie's not come back in a bottle, unfortunately. No. You know, it's just it's just broken so many ways. I was just saying, we get a lot of dud autobiographies. We either have people who don't have that phenomenal a story to tell or those who do have a great story don't really want to tell it in full. It does seem like based on the extracts from Sia Khaleesi's book and from Troy Deeney's book, like they are worth a read. So Khaleesi, first of all, the South African captain, obviously very famous at this stage. I think his story is reasonably well known, but some of the details here in the extract from his autobiography are absolutely extraordinary. So he's born in uh, 
1991, June 91, the last day of apartheid, he notes, and he's born just outside the city of Port Elizabeth in a township called Zweedy. And he says it's a typical township, the kind of place that looks permanently half-finished. Traffic would weave around potholes deep enough to break axles, pavements, often compacted earth rather than tarmac. Uh, the materials for houses, sometimes there was uh, concrete, but otherwise, he says, a lot of tin houses. He says it's a terrible material. In the summer, it keeps none of the heat out, and in the winter, it keeps none of the warmth in. Toilets usually outside, often shared. Sewers running alongside the roads. Our house had four rooms. He says that that sounds uh, spacious. It's not. There were six or seven there, and roof all was leaking. He says, my bed, a pile of cushions on the floor. Most nights, I could hear the rats running around, and I could feel them as they scampered over me, which is a thought worth uh, reflecting on for a moment. Hard to sleep, I would think, with rats running on you. And my parents were both teenagers. My mother was 18. My father was 15. They weren't much more than kids themselves. He said it was decided very early on that my father's mother would look after me as my father was away working so much. He was a house painter, often, you know, away for weeks or months at the time. This was just the way it was. Talks about hunger. And he says that this is very different to being hungry. He talks about how all consuming it was and how his stomach would twist in in itself. The more he tried to ignore the pain, the worse it got. And Eventually, uh, the death of his grandmother happens and it's, you know, desperately sad time. Talks about the violence as well. People fought all the time. Men fought with men. Men beat women. My mother and aunt were both subjected to violence and men and women beat children. People were angry, angry. Sometimes they were drunk. And then when everyone's prepared to resort to violence at the drop of a hat, it becomes totally normal and mentions one occasion for instance where he was watching the 07 World Cup final in a pub a man beat up his girlfriend for going out without him he kicked her smashed her face against the wall dragged her out of the bar by her hair nobody intervened there were hundreds of people there not one of them did or said a thing only when something was seen as affecting the whole community did people take action and he gives an example of that where somebody started wearing a new pair of shoes and they were presumed to be stolen or uh, bought with gang money. It was at a time when the community had had enough of gangsters and all they knew was that this guy had a reputation and a flash pair of shoes. They didn't know that he'd gone straight. They set on him with rocks and they stoned him to death. His mother was watching and even that didn't stop them. I saw a girl of about 11 or 12, not much older than I was at the time, pick up a rock and throw it at his head, just like everyone else. I watched this man as life went out of him. I saw the moment the last breath went out of him. I mean, you read that, uh, Kieran, and holy moly, I mean, this guy's story is uh, beyond the stuff of Hollywood, really. That's insane. Uh, it's absolutely harrowing, really, is the only word I can I can think of. I mean, I just had to put it into something online. There's two, two and a half thousand words or so, this piece, but I just flew through it. Like, it just, it's just compelling. You can't stop. It, it, it almost feels, reads like fiction, but it's, it's, it's too much. Like, you know, you wouldn't write it. Um, you know, stuff about, like, him then, you know, he started to hang out with other people and he was drinking and smoking weed. And he said, we'd squeeze five rands worth of petrol out of the pump, shake it up in a plastic bottle and inhale the fumes. He was eight or nine thinking he was tough and wanted to fit in. So, I mean, it's just an incredible story. I, I knew I knew some of the story. I'd watched the, the, the documentary uh, that followed South Africa there last year. And I thought Man Pimpy's, Macazola Man Pimpy's story was was incredible, which is, you know, the, the story of um, the, the one where if you Google it, actually, you'll find uh, Razi Erasmus crying, telling the story about Man Pimpy having like nobody to play for because all the players got, you know, names or, or photographs of the uh, 
closest people to them on, on their numbers and their jerseys. And Mampimpi just had nobody, you know, and he, he started to break down. And reading this story now, you think, you know, it was more than just Mampimpi and the actual detail of what Khaleesi came through and, 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 and to see him now as the captain and lifting the World Cup trophy. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I hope nobody makes a movie out of it because they'll probably destroy it. But I definitely will pick this book up. I, I don't I don't read, I don't, it should be part of the job. I don't love a lot of sporting biographies or autobiographies, but this this sounds insane. And it's amazing coming today after that game yesterday against uh, New Zealand. I mean, you just, you, you can't have any more respect for some of these South African guys. And you realise that, you know, it kind of ties in with the URC. How many of these South Africans leave South Africa and feel they need to get away for money, but also just to escape the life that they had or the life they grew up in. Um, I mean, a lot of the white South African players get away because they, they don't like the violence that's there. But people like Khaleesi talking about growing up fully in it is a totally different story. And um, to think that he went on to become captain and then win and lift the, the Webb Ellis Trophy is, is just remarkable. It is, it's, his career is an impossibility reading this, Roy. I think from memory, I'd have to double check, I think he gets a scholarship and ultimately that's what transforms yeah. his life. But um, really, Roy, I mean, it gives you a sense he had no chance in life. I mean, if you're not picked up out of that environment, you just are doomed. I mean, whether we're, um, you know, nature or nurture, I think <laughs> it doesn't matter what your nature is in that environment, unless you're plucked up and taken out of it, you just have so little chance in life. I worked at the 1995 Rugby World Cup and we were brought into township outside Joburg and it was an extraordinary eye-opener. I mean, we think we know poverty, we think we know hopelessness. These people are just in this web of despair and the miracle of Khaleesi is where he ends up. I mean, he is a tiny percentage. Most in that environment just are simply have no chance there is no education to talk talk about. There is no passport away. It's it's a lottery win if you get a chance to get out. I, I was I remember it was myself and, and Kieran Rooney then of the, the Independent um had gone in and we came back and we were instructed coming back through Joburg not to stop at any of the traffic lights, to stay in the middle lane because there might be people coming out of the shadows. And we actually went to a bar when we got back into Joburg and we were walking in and they asked us if we'd any guns could we hand them in um, because this was the culture there was a culture of violence there was a culture where people lived in terror and another section of society was living in abject poverty and there was fear and there was loading and there was mutual distrust and for Khaleesi as Kiran said, to have advanced so far and captains, it's you can say it's an emblem of the new South Africa, but beneath that there's still so much wrong. Um, that I, I I would recommend to people who they want if they want an insight. We talk about reading books, visit these townships, visit the favelas um, in Brazil, and you see the miracle of so many sportsmen. We see these people on the field performing to a level. The real triumph in a lot of cases is how they got there. I think we're going to talk about the Troy Deeney one as well, which is a, a similar situation where he his his father, who wasn't actually his blood father, but uh, essentially uh, took on that role, was a criminal um, who was a member of a Birmingham hooligan group um, who picked, picked Deeney up one day from training in, in a car that he didn't own 
and Dini heard some noise in the in the from the boot, and he said to his father, "Who's that? Or what's that?" And it was some drug rival that they picked up and locked in the boot. So these are the lives that have been lead, lead that have been led by a lot of these. I'm a big NBA fan, and some of the backstories of the players are really, really compelling, and they actually make for great stories. As Kieran talks about the blandness of so many autobiographies, but there there are fantastic stories out there how people have risen above the odds that were presented and just become something it's inspiring really yeah the troy Deeney one as well page 80 of the mail here ollie holt has worked on the book with him so no surprises he gets the first interview with him and they're driving around birmingham and Deeney has shown him certain spots where things happen as you say roy his father in and out of jail a lot i mean the headline even on the piece is dad was out of control i'm going to kill your mum and then he pointed to us kids then i'm going to kill you and you and you so that's a headline where you stop and you read and uh, troy Deeney, it's warts and all a bit like khaleesi and just talks like that was a moment where they had tried to get away from him his name was uh, paul anthony burke and he remembers being at matches and you know people saying oh my god there's burkey on the sideline when he'd walk in and how he enjoyed that he liked going to a pub and he liked intimidating people and tracks the family down at one stage I'm going to kill you then I'm going to kill you and then I'm going to kill you he said to the kids he began flinging punches at my mum I jumped up and tried to tried to get between them he punched me knocked me over hit my mum again he said to my mum that she had to take him back every time she said no he hit her I was jumping up and getting in front saying don't hit my mum and then he'd hit me I just remember not staying down getting up getting back in front getting up getting back in front mum was trying to reason with him it was mayhem. A friend knocked at the door, saw what was happening and called the police and they took him away. And then there was another time, like chilling kind of moment where um, he was accusing their mum of laughing at him outside the school. But she said she was trying to reassure a friend who had seen him turn up at the school. And he said, if you want to smile, I'll give you an effing smile. He said, prizing the corners of her mouth apart at the sides and stretching them with his thumbs. I'll give you a permanent smile if you want. You can have a joker smile. He banged her head against the window a few times and then got out. So it's just horrific. And he still says, by the way, because he refers to his biological father as the sperm donor and doesn't want much of a relationship with him. He still has what's really interesting, Kieran, and I think it shows the complexity of human emotions. There is a very real and residual love for his stepfather, who's now dead. He died in 2012. I knew he loved me and I loved him. And most of the time I did have a happy childhood. And he does talk about the respect he has that his father did stick around when his biological father hadn't. So it's very, very complex. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of therapy. And again, it's rare that Premier League players open up like that. So that looks like another book worth buying if you're into your football. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't gotten to, to read this excerpt yet, so I'm not as full up on that story. But it, it is a bit, it's a bit like Felici. I mean, a lot of the times we look at these players and we think, you know what they achieve ultimately in terms of trophies or medals or whatever is the, is the real greatness but sometimes just getting there i mean to think that these guys have been able to come from where they did um and just make it to an elite professional sports person to get paid for, for playing sport is incredible because there's such a tiny percentage of people who do it anyhow um so you you would kind of read these stories or hear these tales and look at troy Deeney then next week you know, running and if he misses something, think a little bit differently of him. And there's so many of these stories behind the, the personalities that we don't know. Um, I mean, it's always amazing when you do hear one of these stories and you think, how did you even manage to just stay on the straight and narrow at all? Never mind Excel. 
Um, it's one of those ones, actually. I think one, an English coach in rugby recently, or a couple of years ago at least, was talking about the Irish rugby team and whether it needed a bit more hard luck stories in there. And you do wonder, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, boxing is full of these incredible people because they've, they've shown the adversity to come to their top. The Brazilian players, as Roy said, like Brazil exports more soccer players than beef, I think, at this stage. It's, it's just that they're everywhere. If you look at Japanese leagues, Chinese leagues, Brazilian players are everywhere, but they've all had to fight and scrap to get out of there. And um, it might be a bit trite to kind of compare it now, but you know, when you do look at rugby and you look at the the way some of the players have come through, they've gone to the elite level, but we always seem to, you know, never be able to make it at the the, the, the cut and thrust like a World Cup. Um, I'm not I'm not saying we should, you know, change people's lives just so we can win sport or whatever like yeah. that. But it, it is an incredible story, and I, I think there's probably more out there that we don't even know of really. Roy, I'll come to you on the Ryder Cup stuff in a second. Or you picked that out, but I just want to briefly mention there's a brilliant insight here from Bernard Jackman page 13 of the Sindo. This is really getting behind the curtain. So just on the back, you know, the South African sides have joined now. And to be fair, the Bulls are well resourced, even though there is a salary cap. But maybe we didn't fully appreciate where the players were coming from over the last uh, year or two in the Pro 16, as it was, the Southern Kings. So just an amazing story here that started Bernard Jackman's piece. February 2019, I'm working pitch side, RDS, Southern Kings were coming out in dribs and drabs. They're playing uh, Leinster. A friend playing for the Kings came over to shoot the breeze. Small talk, always follows the same route. By the time the chat wrapped up, I was already feeling sorry for them. They were like lambs to the slaughter. How's the body? You enjoying the tour? Oh, Ireland, it's so bloody expensive. Not what I'd expected. I said, yeah, but it is. But you guys must have been out and seen a few sights down in Munster last week. No, nothing. I was beginning to feel like a faulty Ireland rep on the ropes. What about the food? Any nice meals? Guy said, no, but at least we had a good scam worked out. So basically, on the Monday, the team manager would go around to every player asking if they'd be having lunch or dinner in the team hotel on the squad day off, typically two days out from the match. Those who ate elsewhere would be given a €20 per diem per meal in cash and the Kings manager could reduce their bill at checkout. Okay, cool, I said. What restaurants did you go to? None, he said. That's the trick. We have a massive breakfast and then we raid the team room for protein bars and protein shakes and stay in our rooms for the rest of the day. That's an extra 600 rand per week tax-free. Bernard Jackman says, I tried to look impressed as my jaw hit the floor. I know what I'd prefer 48 hours before I face Keen Healy and co, but each their own, I guess. Uh, getting the run around for 80 minutes would cost you more in reputational damage and contract value than the few per diems. Leinster won 59-19 that night. So, I mean, that was just... I know the Southern Kings weren't pulling up trees, but even that is kind of a surprise that that was the attitude or that's where the players are coming from. And, uh, you know, it's a, it was just a hell of an insight. On to the Ryder Cup, Roy Curtis. So you, you picked out a few pieces. We have, uh, what, we have a couple of people. I'll, there's a piece in the Sunday Independent, I presume the Independent over in the UK. Oliver Brown, in contrast maybe, certainly to Dermot Elise, who says, well, a bunch of the players, half let Harrington down and Shane McGrath's taking a more nuanced view, saying there is a bit of a degree of reputational damage, but ultimately uh, not very much. Whereas o Oliver Brown is kind of saying, what is this omerta? Like, protect the captain at all costs. Like, of course, Harrington did a dreadful job, is his take. And he's sick of the likes of Westwood and Poulter and everybody coming out saying Harrington did a great job. I find myself conflicted when it comes to the Ryder Cup. I think in 30-odd years working in this business, Porrick Harrington is the Irish sportsman I most admire. I love his, his candour. I love his curiosity. I love his quirky eccentricity. I love his willingness to make himself look silly to try and improve. I love the fact that he has squeezed every blob of potential um, from his body and somehow won three majors. 
he bridged that 70-year gap to Fred Daly and the floodgates opened after that with four subsequent different Irish players after him winning majors. He's, he's an extraordinary character. To be honest, the Ryder Cup leaves me a little cold. It's, it's wonderful television, but I actually have written a line similar. Shane McGrath is one of my favourite writers, and he starts his piece today saying, as an absurdly exaggerated sporting occasion, the Ryder Cup runs a Lions tour close as the most overblown of them all. I would, I would tend to agree completely with that. In fact, I think I've, I've compared those two events in, in making, making a similar point. Um, to me, it's golf will always be an individual sport. And I think players who have failed to achieve at the major level really hope to build a career on Ryder Cup. I mean, when I hear Ian Poulter is the mailman who always delivers, Jesus, give me strength. I don't see he has delivered in too many, in too many majors, unfortunately. Of course, the captain has a role, but it's absurdly overblown. We've mythologized um, the captain to a point where the color of goldfish you have in the tank is now considered sort of central to how, how a team performs. I desperately wanted Europe to win this because of Harrington and because of Larry, but I had a substantial bet on America at 8 to 15 because it was essentially a license to print money. Um, there was no way with that squad, unless something catastrophic occurred, that they were going to lose. The question, Oliver Brown says it is uh, damaging to Harrington's legacy. Um, Shane makes the point, as does Dermot Galise, that yeah, you have to take it into account, but it's dwarfed by what he achieved on on the world stage as a player. Um, my own take on it would be that that 18 months and what, what Harrington did in Carnoussie and Birkdale and then going over to America and winning the PGA, is that affected by his Ryder Cup captaincy? Not at all. I think Dermot Galise points out that Jack Nicholas has somehow survived being a losing Ryder Cup captain. Perhaps it's something to do, something to do with those um, with those 18 majors. There have been some terrible Ryder Cup captains. I mean, Nick Faldo plainly used it as a vehicle for his own ego. There was an absolute absence of self-awareness. Hal Sutton went around in a Stetson like a cowboy who'd lost his horse, not knowing what to do next. But Harrington, did he get things wrong? I suppose you could you could argue the point about some of the pairings. You could suggest that they definitely need more captain's picks. But ultimately, he was he was left with guys like Tyrrell Hatton and Lee Westwood, who couldn't hit the ball out of the way for the last six months. He had a, a journeyman in Bernd Beadsburger who got his got himself onto the team the last day because of the quirks of the qualification system. He had the world's greatest player in John Ram, but after the support cast didn't compare with America, I think maybe Harrington could have done one or two things different. Does it damage his legacy? Not at all. The Ryder Cup, as Shane McGrath brilliantly points out, is a hugely overblown cousin of the Lions in how corporate schmoozers build, build their year around it. <laughs> Kieran? What can you say? Yeah. <laughs> I, I <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think in 20 or 30 years, there won't be anybody would ever mention Podrick Harrington's name and think of Whistling Straits the last week. Um, I mean, I think he, I interviewed him the first week, uh, the, sorry, the week after he won his first major and he just spoke with such joy and it was almost like he just was surprised that he ever got to do this. 
and then that he went on and did it another two times was was just you know the mm. icing on the cake or it just seemed so far-fetched even for him so I, I think even since then he's he's a bit like Michael Campbell Michael Campbell always says that when he won his first major he woke up the next morning next Monday morning and thought what am I going to do in my life now because I've just achieved everything I wanted to I, I think Harrington's had a little bit of that it seemed from the outside at least since he won those three he kind of conquered all the worlds he could conquer and I think the Ryder Cup might have met meant a lot to him um and maybe in Ireland we kind of do care a little bit more about it than some places but for, for Oliver Brown or anybody to say that this has tarnished his legacy or you know we, people in 20 years will look back and think of that Irishman who won three majors what he did one weekend in America as a captain and non-playing like it's a non-playing role yeah. as well how can yeah. that tarnish his, his playing legacy I just think it's, it's it doesn't even bear talking about really yeah, yeah I, I think, think I, I think Nick Fowler is one of the few it does kind of come into his legacy because yeah. he was so bad but like Harrington well, he was especially awful yeah, as yeah. A, a just, that was just as a human it's not even really the team uh, I mean I don't remember the score from that 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 Ryder Cup you just remember Nick taking over everything uh, so that was a special case his speech at the speech, uh, the yeah. opening of that yeah, Ryder yeah. Cup oh my god it's just a man <laughs> void of emotional intelligence well that that was the one I think and in fairness mm. Harrington won't have that hanging over him uh, before we wrap up then because the clock's properly against us now uh, two national teams with uh, eyes on them so we'll come to Stephen Kenny in a second plenty of pieces about Kenny uh, before that Kieran, you'd have a good sense of this women's game on the floor Eamon Sweeney back page he concludes mm. his piece by saying the RFU can't say they weren't warned they should be ashamed of themselves is his conclusion to what's happened to the Irish 15s team and he talks, you know, entering the 2017 World Cup, this team was one of Irish sports' great success stories after Six Nations titles in 13 and 15 and beating the All Blacks at the World Cup in 14. He says perhaps the first crack in the facade appeared in February of 17 when three players were withdrawn from a Six Nations match against France to play a sevens tournament in Las Vegas. The decision, criticised by former captain Fiona Coughlin, said uh, Ireland risked becoming a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. IRFU policy in women's rugby has always made no distinction between the two codes, even though Sevens was dwarfed by the 15s game in terms of public exposure. Ireland eighth at that World Cup. Uh, even talks about the 17 World Cup and uh, makes a good point, actually. The combined uh, 45,000 mm -hmm. spectators at attendance at all 30 matches looks distinctly underwhelming next to the All-Ireland that year in the football, which had 46,000. Ireland played all of their games in the 2,000 capacity Belfield Bowl when surely they should have been given a chance to draw a big crowd to Lansdowne or Thomond, which is a um, very fair point in hindsight when you see the turnouts at lots of sporting occasions, not least the All-Ireland Women's Football Final. And Look, he segues into the Adam Griggs era and on it goes. Uh, in short, his point is, Kieran, this has been coming for a long time. This isn't a sudden drop-off in performance or policy and we're wondering, well, why has this happened? This has been coming for about four or five years now. Yeah, I actually covered that Women's Rugby World Cup and um, I mean, it's kind of hard in a way. Um, it's, it's a bit like the vaccine talk. Journalists sometimes find it difficult to speak negatively in any sense about women's sport because they'll just get called out and hammered for saying something and any discussion can't be taken on its merits. It, it, it kind of delves into somebody's misogynist or whatever else. But I was at the Belfield Bowl and, and some of the rugby was absolutely horrendous. Um, it was like friends and family turned up. So I don't know if you'd gotten anywhere near having Aviva Stadium to, to a decent crowd or even Thomond. I think the final was played up in Kingspan, if I'm not mistaken. Um, France and New Zealand were, and England were probably two, three of the only teams that played anyway good rugby. And I, I think the sevens, you know, you're looking at money, you're looking at the Olympics, 
the IRFU have to think, you know, what's the best use of our resources here? There's not a lot of players. I don't know how many people we can reasonably target to have playing at the base of women's rugby in Ireland. I just don't know what, you know, great love there is out there for the female game. Um, I'll probably get hammered for even asking that question. But I, I think, you know, the fact that there was 45,000 across 30 games at a World Cup um, tells me it's not a huge, there's not a huge interest level there. And if the IRFU thought, you know what, we don't have a lot of players, sometimes we'll pick up people who have played Gaelic football for a couple of years and throw them into the Six Nations. I mean, it's it's such a it's it's a, just at such a low level, and there's a myriad of you know reasons why, and there's loads of questions to be asked there. But I, I don't quite know what the ultimate goal is, or the aim, or what's a reasonable target. Um, there's so much talk about you know we should have equality of opportunity, but the the pursuit of the equality of outcome and having stadiums full. Um, and having players reach the same standard as the men, I just don't know how, how reasonable that is and how quickly we think we can get there. You know, the players aren't, don't seem to be getting a lot of questions asked to them, you know, losing to Spain. I mean, what's Spain, what's rugby like in Spain? You know, in the last year and a half, what have they been doing? What have the women's players been doing there? Um, I think there's the players are getting off quite lightly here. And I'm, I'll be completely honest in saying that I didn't watch the game so I can't tell you a great deal about it um, but it, it's still the players aren't getting a lot of questions and it's it's really we're, we're more caught up in the whole conversation about equality um, the questions of, of whether they should be funded the same as the men I just don't think that's realistic I think the IRFU are going to be very tight in the next few years and it's going to be become even more difficult but you know the, the structures that are there have to be questioned I think Rory O'Connor did a big piece yesterday in the independent but I just don't really know what a reasonable target or aim is for the sport in the country well, I suppose the obvious point to make is given that they made a World Cup semi-final and they won Six Nations titles in 13 and 15, to not be in the sure. World Cup a yeah. couple of years later is an, a huge fall from grace. If, if, this, if the sport was coming from absolutely no base, Roy, then you could say, well, this is going to be a slow build and what's the appetite? But there actually was a time just six, seven years ago when things were going extremely well and there was a good batch of players and if you had the right pathways then and the right promotion then, things could have been built upon. But actually, it's been let wither away. The sevens policy is highly questionable. And here we are now where they're not even at the World Cup. So I suppose that's the point here. This has actually been allowed to decline, let alone improve. It's it's a huge opportunity lost. I, I agree with the main trust of, of Kieran's argument to not make a World Cup. I mean, rugby is not a world game. It's played in pockets of the country, in pockets of, of the world. The fact that we can't even get to the tournament um, suggests a, a, a dysfunction at the heart, whether it's of the IRFU, whether it's of management, whether it's of playing performance. And I think it's interesting, the comparison that, that Eamon made with, with uh, the, the GA and the women's football, and that is at such a particular high. This, this rugby calamity was unfolding against the backdrop of a brilliant All-Ireland between Meath and Dublin and of course the, the Dublin team featuring featuring Hannah Tyrrell who had mm. who had left the rugby situation to to go and play with Dublin. There's there's a huge cross pollination be between the two sports and you're talking about two sports uh, competing for scarce resources. And at the moment, if you were a young girl thinking which pathway you might follow, um, and you are torn between the two, the, yeah. the, the positive breeze would certainly take you towards GA and away from rugby at no, the moment, setting it back further. That's true. Um, 
clock really again so I get a final thought from each of you Stephen Kenny features naturally across the papers there's um, comments from him talking about how the European route for lots of players will be an attractive one and talks about how Anderlecht has improved Josh Cullen I see John Brennan amongst uh, several writing about how Kenny's you know under pressure and there's no doubt that he is the Azerbaijan game is next Saturday Tommy Conlon talking about a long road for Ireland to travel and you know, balances the argument of like is, is is Kenny biting more than he can chew here in terms of trying to revolutionise Irish football from the position of national team manager versus well, we have to do something and God it's good to see someone try and do something with a bit of idealism and I know uh, Kieran, you picked out an interview with Will Keane who's a call up brother of Michael had terrible injuries the last couple of years and uh, is now uh, part of the Irish senior camp so it's all there it's across the papers I'm curious for, for both your thoughts where is Stephen Kenny Roy? Um, we could say he's at a crossroads, but he's been at that crossroads for so long now that I suppose we need to present it in a different way. What has happened, I think, I, and I'm, I'm as guilty of it as, as Annie, is we've fallen into polar opinions that it's now seen that if you take a particular view on Stephen Kenny, that you're somehow betraying a certain way of, of viewing football. Um, my, my own view is... I generally despise short-termism and evaluating something on it, essentially on results and then moving on. But we've moved beyond short-termism here. I mean, 16 games, one win, 12 competitive games, no wins. Mm. You can spin an idealistic worldview, and I'm all for that. But ultimately and brutally, it's a results game. There's a, a line from Tommy Conlon. I think Tommy's very good piece. And it says, clearly in a results business, he mentions... The, the abiding irony here is that his chronic inexperience at the high end of football management is probably helping him to keep his job on the basis that he needs an extra long period of time to bed into the role. If it were a battle-hardened four-star general of the English leagues who were in this gig, he'd probably have been turfed out long ago. I, I'd go back, I covered Euro 88, and one of the, I think, the very few journalists, a sign of age, who covered all the, um, the Irish tournaments qualifications. And... I get slightly irritated at this notion that it was all Stone Age football in the past and that this is suddenly um, a break from all of that. I mean, anyone who was in Hanover when Ireland outplayed Russia in 88 or who was in Wembley in 91 or more recently who was um, at, at the Euro 2016 and those games against, against France and Italy would think that Ireland showed a little. I do accept that it was, it was caveman stuff a lot of the time in recent years. But ultimately, this is a results business. I remember championing the appointment of a Brian Kerr and arguing vehemently for him to be appointed. And then I remember writing a couple of years later that the results, unfortunately, meant that he was in a perilous state. And I fell out with Brian as, as a consequence of that. And I see him now on TV3 and his analysis is just so far superior to anything you see anywhere. And I say, how is that guy not involved? So that's why I'm very cautious of the short-term thinking. But ultimately, I think Stephen, whatever about, he, he made the point that were we expected to beat Portugal and Serbia? Absolutely not. But were we expected to beat Azerbaijan and, and Luxembourg? Absolutely. And we failed. And there's only so much you can talk about implementing a style and a strategy if you can't back it up with results to mm -hmm. buy you time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kieran, last word to you. So it's Azerbaijan away. And then there'll be the Qatar game. I don't know if that's a friendly or what the hell that is, but it's Azerbaijan away, 
then next month it would be Portugal home and Luxembourg away. Luxembourg away, no longer the gimme we once uh, <laughs> might have thought yeah. it was. So uh, where are you and Kenny finally? Azerbaijan away is never a, a welcoming sentence, but especially so for Stephen Kenny now. I, 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 it's a horrible thing to say, and I, I, I've covered and known Stephen since his Bohemian days. Um, but I kind of pity, I feel pity when I see what's going on and the story and the troubles he's had. I mean, it's, it's, it's 16 games and you think, okay, if you've only managed one, you know, the law of averages should have meant that there should be some, you know, positives here somewhere. But I, I struggle to think of a manager who's had such a, a bad luck across the board. Every little thing that could go wrong has gone wrong. Even within games, there's wonder goals scored against them by Luxembourg, wonder goal by Azerbaijan. You know, you can dig deep into a million little tactical things. Um, but I, I can't find one thing that's gone his way. I mean, can you? Can you think of no, something? No, it, 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 it's look, gotten lucky there. there there's a, you know. There is still a jury out here, right? I mean, I know we're often accused of being big Kenny fans here in the show. There's very much jury <laughs> out. You couldn't make a strong argument given the results. And so in that context, no, before anyone jumps down my throat, but in that context, they have genuinely been unlucky in quite a lot of, like there has been a bad look about this uh, whole yeah. campaign, I would say the last on 15 months. On and off the pitch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, on yeah. and off the pitch. I mean, to, the performance in Portugal, you know, I mean, again, it's just Cristiano Ronaldo doing what he did the other day. If he wasn't on the pitch for those last five minutes, that would have been one of the all-time results. Uh, the game against Slovakia in the playoff was a really good performance, but he's just had so many things go wrong. And I mean, I was looking through the Will Keane piece and um, at the end of one of the other articles talking about, you know, the Irish players, uh, you know, this weekend, it was like elsewhere in League One. I mean, that's what we're dealing with as well. I've seen yeah. what Kenny did with Derry. I've seen what he did with Dundalk and, you know, what he did in Europe with both of those teams. He, he can coach. It's not like this guy is, he's been plucked from the League of Ireland and he's a, he's a, he's a rookie and he's, oh, he has to learn the job. I mean, I've seen what he can do with, with teams that started on a low ebb. Both of those clubs started at a very low level. And you see what he did with them, not only in the league, but what he did in Europe then as well. This guy, you know, he has very, very, he's a very, very capable coach and he gets teams and players to play very good football. But I just think he needs a, he needs a bit of luck. You know, he needs something to turn his way because you just can't, you can't keep making that same argument over and over. No, you can't. No. I, I'd be surprised if he gets more than, you know, the next competition, or the next campaign, even if he does get the next campaign. Next three or four games, huge for him over the next two months. So, uh, fellas. He needs a couple of wins, yeah. Probably, yeah. We're out of time. Thanks so much. That was great. Kieran O'Reilly, great to have you back on again. Roy Curtis, lovely to have you on. Thanks so much, Roy. Appreciate it, fellas. Cheers, Cheers. Thank you. Cheers guys. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.